0: Welcome, everyone, to the gaming couch. Be it video games, card games, or board games, we'll have a good time playing. So, come and join me on the couch. This is your host, Smart Boy. Hello, all you wonderful listeners. I hope everyone is enjoying this summer weather, and hopefully, it's not too hot and humid by you, wherever you may be. Uh, So, this week, I think it's about time we go back a little bit. So, The past few discussions we've had is all about, you know, the mechanics of a game, what makes it engaging, or what gets you kind of brought into the world, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's all well and good, you know, being able to play the game, smooth controls, good mechanics, stuff like that is great, and it's important. However, there is additional element in there, a really important one, and that is the characters inside those games, inside those worlds. People that are there, that you have a chance to interact with, that give you know the story elements to you, or major plot points, or if it's you know trading with items and stuff like that, or companions, enemies, or whatever. They're they're there to kind of fill the world and give you some direction, some purpose, things like that. And it's incredibly important for the game with creating these characters. Now. This is not always true. There are some genres, like kind of like the horror genre, stuff like that. There are games that thrive off of not having a lot of characters. Games kind of like Silent Hill don't have many characters involved in them, or the Amnesia series, where there's only like maybe two or three people, including the main character, which works well enough for those games and those genres. But for the most part, we need other people in these worlds for us to work with. And outside of being those supporting characters, the main villains or whatever, a lot of times they can help deliver a message. You know, they can represent something like an ideology or a belief or something like that, that you as the player and or main character work in parallel with or directly against or something like that. It kind of drives you in a sense, like you're not just against the game, you're now against or working with these other people in the world here. like you, You feel a part of it because of these individuals. Now, the three games to highlight this week, and putting it out there right now, I'm going to say it again when I'm done with the name, but major spoilers for all this, okay? So the three games I'm looking at is Dragon Age Origins, released back in November 2009, Bioshock back in August 2007, and Valkyrie Chronicles back in April 2008. Now, again, I know it's been like 10 years since these games have been released, But I want to put out there big spoilers since I'm talking about some of the main characters in these games. Major spoilers go along with it for these games. So again, if you want to take a break for this week, go right ahead, putting it out there. So without any further ado, let's jump into this. So the first game, Dragon Age Origins, it's set up like your kind of classic RPG epic with a typical story. You know, you're the chosen hero go out and fight the big evil and prevent the world from ending. You know, you pick your race and your class at the start, and depending on your race and class combination determines one of the, you know, unique openings for you. And since each of these openings are unique, you know, that kind of helps you introduce the character to the world and introduce the player to who they are, but it's not the main factor yet of the story. It's mostly just this is how you became the chosen hero. After the introductory... All of the characters, regardless of your background, you know, all the playthroughs go to the same place. Ostagar, that's, like, the first main element of the main quest. Now, there, you are introduced to a couple of, you know, major important people. You know your mentor now from the Order, you know, the Grey Wardens. You get to meet the king of the country, he's a great guy, and you get to meet one of, like, the major military figures who's a brilliant tactician that's kind of helping in this war, So you reach Ostagar, it's in the middle of this huge war, and you're just there to start, you know, helping out. Because for whatever reason, you cannot go home at this time. You're just joining this order because you have nothing else to do, pretty much. Now, the third guy I mentioned, the military tactician, his name is Logain. And he's kind of what creates this whole epic. Like, he's the catalyst behind it all. So, yes, you're fighting this in this war. You're fighting what's called the Darkspawn and the Archdemon, which obviously is a main antagonist. But Loghain becomes another antagonist that you can understand a little bit more. So what happens is you have two major cutscenes in Ostagar. And in between the two cutscenes, there's a little section that you play out, like that's your role in the in the current battle, right? So the plan that Loghain came up with is... First, the king and about, like, half the army is going to charge forward, you know, and take the darkspawn head-on. And then the warden, you know, you, the main character, is going to light a beacon at the top of a tower. And when that happens, that's a signal for Loghain and his whole army, you know, pretty much the other half of the forces, charge in and pretty much flank the darkspawn and just, you know, pretty much win the war right then and there. So the first cutscene, is shows King Caelan, your mentor, and, like, pretty much the bulk of the army confronting the dark spawn, and it's just like this huge epic battle starts up, and the music starts going, you feel great, it's like, okay, let's go do this. You get to the top of the tower, you light the beacon, hurrah! Second cutscene starts, that shows Loghain and his army. Loghain sees the beacon, and then it immediately sounds a retreat, pulling out his forces, leading to the death of everyone, including your mentor and the king. And right then and there now, Loghain is pretty much labeled a traitor. But here's the problem. No one knows, outside of you and one other person from the Order that survive. Everyone else is dead, and no one else knows what Loghain did. So, there is a story. You're now trying to rebuild an army to fight the Darkspawn and win the war, as well as exposing Loghain for the traitor that he is. Now, here's what makes him such an interesting and mysterious character in terms of a main villain. He lets the king die. He knows it. He's fully aware of what he's doing, yet he seems to feel nothing. Even though his daughter is married, or was married, to the king... He just doesn't seem to care. He He's like, yeah, he he died, so what? You know, he doesn't bring any attention to it. And then after the king dies, he learns that, you know, two of the wardens, you and your friend, lived, and he starts to send, like, assassins after you and everything to try and take care of you, so that way no one else knows what happened to Ostergar. And then he also poisons the late king's uncle, the one man who might actually rise up against Loghain. He poisons him to keep him out of court as Loghain tries to just kind of like corral the rest of the nobles under his rule and continue to fight the war. And part of Loghain's character is years ago, before the game takes place, he fought along the previous king. So not King Caelan, the one who dies in the game, but Caelan's father. Loghain fought with him for Ferelden's freedom to pretty much free the country from the rule that they had and that kind of ties into everything at the end of the game you finally have that chance to kind of dethrone Loghain you barge in what do they call the lands meet which is pretty much this huge political meeting and you have all these facts about you know what Loghain did why he's not fit to rule and all the bad stuff he's been doing and so this whole like kind of debate goes on between you and him that's happening before the big battle at the end to really get rid of his rule and kind of just stake yourself there, like, yeah, I'm the good guy. And at the very end of this whole debate, you are given two choices. Either kill Loghain right then and there in front of everybody, because that's just how the lands meet works, or you have him join your order. You, he joins the Grey Wardens. And here's what gets, again, really interesting about Loghain's decisions. When that happens at the very end of the lands meet, when you defeat Loghain, he gives in. He completely changes. So the entire time in the game, he's doing all this stuff. He's making all these decisions, and he's pretty much this intimidating, huge presence. You know, you'll see cutscenes of him where he's kind of calm and collected, but he has, like, he almost has, like, this air about him, like, standing tall and in charge, commanding people around and everything like it's nothing, all right? And he makes, time and time again, he makes remarks about, hey, I'm doing this for Ferelden. I'm doing this for us, for our freedom, And then when you dethrone him and you beat him, he just sits and he's quiet. You know, you're making a decision, pretty much a life or death decision for Logan, right in front of his eyes, and he says nothing. He waits until you make the decision of what to do with him. And then regardless of what you pick, whether you say, I'm going to kill him or he's going to join us, he's totally fine with it. So if you decide to kill him, he accepts it almost with a smile, like you can almost see a smile out of his face, because his daughter's right there, and he starts to talk to his daughter, like, hey, it's fine, it's all right, everything's going to be just fine. And he kind of like smiles, he turns to you, like, hey, girls never change, you know? You know, he, my daughter, she's always the same. You know, he has this little smirk about him, right before you kill him. And it's like, what? And then he also kind of admits to the player he's happy, and he's kind of at peace with the idea of turning Ferrell in his country Over to you as main character. Over to the Grey Warden. He's like, I'm okay with this. You know, go right ahead. Do what you have to do. What? 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 Okay, so let's do the other thing. Let's decide to have Loghain join us and join the Grey Wardens. Again, he accepts without question. He's like, okay, sure. I'll join the Order. I have no problem with this. You know? And then before the game ends, now that he's in your party with you, you actually get a chance to kind of talk to him. And you find out just, like, how human he is. Like, of course, he's pretty much demonized the entire game for what he did, yes. However, at this moment, you can find out really how human he really is. You can talk to him a lot. You learn a lot about him. You know, a bit about his past, about how he fought with the late, late king to free Ferelden. You learn how he loves his country. He loves his family. And even the fact that he's kind of joyful to still be there fighting alongside you for the freedom of Ferelden once again. However, again, in all this that you're doing, like, again, he's kind of happy to be there to be fighting with you, or he's okay with being killed and turning Ferelden over to you. Never, though, are you given a straight answer about why he betrayed everyone in the beginning. You go this entire game with this drive to dethrone Loghain and save the country from the Blight, yet you never learn, you never get a straight answer from him about why he let Kalen and everyone else die and betray them in the beginning. It's never explained, he never says it, you never really have an an opportunity to ask him during the discussions. It just happened. And then you think, okay, maybe he's a traitor snake and he'll do it again later. No, he doesn't. If you let him live he does fight valiantly beside you in the final battle. In fact, he shows up in later installments in the DLC Awakening and even in Dragon Age 2, and I never played the third one, so I can't comment on that. But in those installments, he shows up again, and he's happily serving in the Grey Wardens, just doing what he has to do. Like, he's ordered around by the head warden. He's like, yep, I'm just doing this. I was told to do this. Now I'm over here fighting this battle. And he just he's totally cool with it. And you kind of learn that he actually is... Despite his flaw in the very beginning, how much of a noble man he is and how much he is willing to do for others and for his country. And I think that's, you know, personally, I think that's what kind of led it. Again, you never learn why he really betrayed them. You still have that question about why did he betray everyone? You know, why after the whole game is he willing to suddenly join you or die by your hand after he pretty much tries to kill you? He's totally fine with all this. And again, I think it comes down to like that patronism, that f- belief to fight for Ferelden. Throughout the game, he keeps making those statements. I'm fighting for Ferelden. I am doing what's right for Ferelden. Yada, yada, yada. He goes on all this. But then at the end, when you dethrone him and he learns, I've been doing it wrong. Everything I've been doing was wrong and it's not for the good of my country. This man or woman before me in the Wardens... They're doing what's right. You know, they exposed me for what I did. And he kind of has like that realization of, oh, I really fucked up here. I shouldn't be doing this anymore. You know, I wasn't helping out my country. And now that he knows this, he kind of gives in. And I think, personally, I think that's kind of what made him change his character. And then at least for the betrayal, it was that sense of patriotism that... Kaelin's not doing this right. Again, it does not kind of uh, warrant his decision to let Kaelin and the wardens in the army get brutally massacred like that. I'm just trying to think of something because, again, he's this mysterious man. I'm trying to think of you know what can go on in someone's head to let everyone, including their king, die like that in a horrible way in a battle. <clears throat> There's no answers. And now uh, let's look at a different villain. Let's let's change gears looking at Bioshock, all right? So there's one thing that I can comment on Bioshock that kind of ties into Logan. A man chooses, a slave obeys. Right there is one of the many statements made by the great Andrew Ryan of Bioshock. So quick little background for those who are still listening and might not know about Bioshock. It takes place in kind of this underwater city of Rapture in the 1960s. And after this huge civil war breaks out, the city is left mostly in ruins and barely held together. Like, it's, the buildings are still there. It's not this flooded, destroyed city, but the inhabitants have gone mad and crazy. There are sections of the cities that are just flooding, and it's, it's kind of just falling apart. However, Ryan, the big guy behind Rapture, the one who originally built Rapture, still lives there, and he still resides in his office to that day, you know, till... ...the events of the Bioshock video game when you're playing. So Ryan set out with this big old vision of a place with pretty much no government or control. You know, a place that anyone can pursue anything that they want without any restriction. Pretty much the ultimate ideology that leads to the demise of the city itself. You see, people were encouraged by Ryan to explore other other avenues to kind of gain power and money... However, as they start to do this, Ryan learns, like, oh, because people are allowed to do whatever they want, and they're trying to gain this power, it's now threatening me, the man who created this city. It's my city. Rapture is mine. Why are you trying to change her? Why are you trying to take over? You know, he starts to clamp down. He goes back on this idea of free enterprise, bringing in laws and regulations and kind of, like, other things to regulate everything. And essentially, Ryan's dream turns on itself. And that was the problem. You know, since people had complete freedom... He then decided, he realized, that's not going to work, that's not going to keep the city afloat, that's not going to let me stay in charge of what I created. His ego gets the best of him, and so Civil War breaks out. So for the first half of the game, he plays the main villain with you and then your friend, this man who you meet named Atlas in the city, is kind of giving you guidance so you can take down Ryan and escape the city. And then at that halfway point, you finally confront Andrew Ryan in his office, and that's when the truth comes out. Faced with death, Ryan shows you that you're a brainwashed slave of your only friend and companion. You're essentially Atlas has brainwashed you. And so Ryan knows the secret phrase, would you kindly, to make you do whatever you want. So, you know, he says, would you kindly go over there, run, walks, like that. And you just, the character does all of it because that is the secret phrase for your brainwash to control you. And the weird part is Ryan knows this. Ryan knows that you were sent to kill him and he lets you do it. He makes that statement. You know, a man chooses, a slave obeys. And then you start beating him to death with a golf club, the very golf club that he handed to you, as he shouts at you to obey as you beat him to death because Atlas told you to kill him, and he lets it happen. And this hits really hard. Ryan's death shows that for the whole first half of the adventure of this entire game that both the main character, Jack, and you as the player were pretty much obeying the commands of someone else and also someone that you really never met in person or really know you just meet them when you get to the city you know your plane crashes you find a lighthouse and it leads you to rapture and so atlas is just helping you out and then it hits even harder that if you look kind of into the lore a little deeper there's some hints and stuff like that floating around in the game that you can go online and do the research or you can just also read the book rapture it's an amazing book you discover that jack the main character was actually ryan's illegitimate child And Ryan knows this. Ryan knows that the assassin being sent to his office to kill him is his son, his own brainwashed son. And so at this point, pretty much Ryan knows he lost. You know, he gives in. He knows he can't control the city. He also can't bring himself to kill his own son. Even if it's his illegitimate son, he just can't bear the guilt of being the one to kill his son. And he knows that, given the chance... His son will kill him. He can't just send his son away. Atlas will make him turn around and go kill him anyway. So he's like, I have to die. And he uses that opportunity of his death to teach Jack, the character, and also you, the player, a major lesson. And it sticks hard with you. Play through the game again. After learning of this whole thing of what Atlas did to you and eventually just, you know, being the game and everything, play through the game again. And as you play through it again, at least in the first half of the game with Atlas you kind of pick up all all the little things that Atlas was saying and doing that kind of made you obey his will. Like, you pick up when he says, would you kindly pick up that wrench? And then you pick up a wrench. Would you kindly go to that office and kill that son of a bitch? Would you kindly do this? You start to pick up kind of all those little nuances, and then you're like, holy shit, I really didn't have a choice. And then, wait, holy shit, even further, many games, even if the game gives you a way of choice, many RPGs do that kind of idea of, like, choice would be the character you want to be, you're still obeying somebody. Because a lot of times ga- games give you some direction, you know, whether it's, like, an objectives checklist, a mini-map with, like, little markers all over tell you where to go or something like that. There's something that is driving you that's telling you, go here and do this. You know, let's just talk about Dragon Age. In one of the areas, you, have, you are helping out the elves who are diseased, and you learn that... Their disease because there's werewolves and it's gets really complicated politics, stuff like that. But just the short and sweet version is you really don't have to kill any of the werewolves. You could just make peace between them, but no, the game is saying, go help these elves, and then the head elf says, Go out into the woods and you're killing all these werewolves that you didn't have to, but you have to, because the game's telling you to do that, until you meet their leader and you can work towards peace. But until then, you gotta kill all these werewolves just because, even though they're cursed humans who just wanna be free gotta kill these people so it's it's shocking it's kind of scary i think that a game or atlas in this case in bioshock was the one you know always pulling the strings and you have no choice even though you think you had some choice in there it really came down to the game telling you what to do and it did it by using two characters and now the last game It, it kind of peels away from this whole villain thing and all that kind of stuff and that illusion of choice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because Valkyrie Valkyria Chronicles, sorry, the spelling's a little weird, V-A-L-K-Y-R-I-A, I'm terrible with English. That game has a huge, colorful cast of characters, all right? It has some World War II vibes to it, the story. was one country, this big, powerful, mighty military state, in a sense, decides to declare war on its neighboring countries and just starts Going you know going out there and taking over right, and the game takes place in one of these smaller countries, Galia, that comes under fire from the Imperials, you know the main baddies, and it kind of plays out like an anime. It has this really beautiful artistic style to it that looks kind of almost like hand drawn, and the cutscenes it feels like I said it feels very anime like, big eyes stuff like that. Even if you're not a fan of anime, check out the game anyway. It is a wonderful game because it's a war game, it's a strategy game that you're taking control of Squad 7, of this group of pretty much ordinary citizens who have banded together to fight in a militia against the Imperials. Now, with the way the game is designed, every character, you know, all the main characters who are part of the main story, who are considered the officers. And even all the recruits that you can bring in, they all have backstories. And it's optional stuff. Like, you can look into the encyclopedia that tells you the backstories of these characters as you use them in combat, and you learn about their relationships with each other. You know, there's optional missions that you can do that develop the main cast further. But it's all optional stuff, so it's not like shoved down your throat. But you have the opportunity to learn more if you want to. And including the villains, you know, there's some stuff you learn about the villains also. So with all these characters... I really just want to focus on one, and that's Isar Gunther, who is the sister of the main character, Welkin. I think out of the entire cast, she has the biggest impact on the story. You know, So her background, she's pretty much only a teenager during the war, and she is fighting in the war. She is in Squad 7. She's pretty much a teenager, like 15 or something years old, 16, I want to say. I'm not entirely sure, but she's young. And she's going through all these events in the game. And she's also a Darkson and it's pretty much like a group of people who've been discriminated against. They pretty much have like kind of like dark purple hair and really nothing else going about them, but it's a way to kind of let the game drive this whole idea of discrimination and racism in war. And they really they go they, they go crazy with that in a good way. Like they really use that to their advantage in the story. And so her participation is really important. So outside of her brother, who's like the head of squads and kind of the other officers, the other like main people in the story. For the most part, most of the characters, you know, they're not really happy with Isar. You know, there's that racism in there. And they're also not really happy with Welkin, for that matter, because, well, he's just a young guy that are fought in a war. We fought in wars for, so why are we taking directions from this kid, you know, this college guy? And it happens, you know, time and time again, but Asar just kind of stays cool and level-headed the entire time. Even with racism, like, from one of the main officers, Rosie, just hates her guts. And Largo, who's kind of Rosie's good friend from previous wars it's not that he really hates Darksons, but he just kind of, he's like, that guy. Is like, you know, I've done this plenty before. Why are you two here? We don't need you. So he just kind of doesn't care, and he just kind of lets Rosie do her thing, and when Rosie gets a little crazy, Largo will step in, but you really see that hatred for Isara unravel before you in the middle of this war, but Isara never really loses her temper. Even with Rosie in her face and other things happening, Isara stays cool, and she continues trying to help. Like, she tries to help Rosie and others, even with people pretty much hating her for who she is. You know, she, you saw her is one of those individuals who just sees humans. You know, it she doesn't care who you are, where you came from or anything like that. She treats everyone equally. And she wants to help. And even when it comes to like fighting for her freedom, she still expresses here and there some distaste and some discomfort with killing others. Like, yes, they're my enemy and yes, they're trying to take over, but I'm still not happy like even in the beginning of the game, When her house comes under attack by these two imperial soldiers, she gives them a chance to back off. She's like, Hey, just leave, you know, I don't want to do this. She ends up killing them because she has to, but she doesn't want to. And then it happens about halfway through the game, there's this pretty lengthy battle. It's almost think of kind of like D Day, but it's just like a small squad, so it's a very small version of D Day. You're storming this beach and everything. At the end, after the fight's over, it's kind of lengthy, there's a cutscene. And Isara is shot and killed by a sniper. And it happens instantly. Like, shortly after the battle, during the cutscene, just bang! You hear the shot, and Isara just drops dead. And it's heartbreaking. Immediately after that, there's a a lengthy scene of a burial happening, you know, for Isara, obviously. And then Rosie actually used to be a singer. And at that moment, during the burial, Rosie actually decides to sing a song for Isara. And it's just this heart-wrenching song that brings you to tears, like... You know, everything together—the fact that Ysara just died, and that the song is about, you know, companionship and camaraderie and stuff like that—and missing somebody—it's like it just hits you so hard. And then from that point out, you know, for the rest of the game, the squad—you know—the other characters kind of become closer to each other. They respect Welkin more. The officers start to respect Welkin. For the leader that he is and for his ability to win battles, they have no right winning. And then Rosie, who used to be a strong Darkson hater, kind of turns a new leaf after seeing Isar killed before her very eyes. And then other events like Rosie sees the aftermath of this slave camp where all these Darksons were pretty much burned alive in their their huts and there were kids present. So you know, after all this happens and Rosie has to witness Isar, ripe, Like is, Rosie's right next to Isar when it happens, Dropped dead. She decides to just start to help people, especially darksins. You know, I mentioned before those special missions pop up that are optional. There's one such mission that pops up for Rosie where she's like, "Hey, I know we're busy, but uh, I need a few people to help me out because there's these dark Sin hunters out and about, and I want to save these families who are running for their lives from imperial forces. And then you have to, you know, take on these imperials as they're hunting down these innocent civilians. And it's all Rosie's idea, the very same person who hated these people to start is now turning a new leaf. So Isaru's death is horrible, and it's it's depressing, and it's terrible, and it's a terrible thing to, like, go through. Even as a player, it hurts to see it happen. But it gives both you as the player and kind of the other characters this new determination to win. So I remember when I first played through the game, I saw that happen, I was just like, oh my god, like, I felt terrible. And for the rest of the game, it just felt off, you know, because imagine if you ever played Fire Emblem, Valkyrie Chronicles has an, a feel like that where every character has a backstory about them that you can learn about and you really see these people as real human beings. And so when he saw his death, which is scripted, happens, I'm like, what can I do now? This It just feels off. Like, I can't go through with the rest of this because she was such an important part of the team and she was such a lovable person. She didn't deserve this. She was a teenager, you know that whole cliche thing, but it's so true, you know, and she can never be replaced, so you continue going throughout the game, and the other characters know that, you know, they know she can never be replaced, but they still fight, and every now and then they make comments about, like, you know, this is for you, Isara, et cetera, et cetera, and even Rosie, like, in the middle of combat, sometimes characters will say things when they're making an attack against an enemy, and Rosie will sometimes shout that, like, this is for you, Isara, she she continues to fight just for that one person who changed her life, and that's what makes Isara so important, and so important that she has to die, because it lets everyone have a revelation, and it even happens a little different in the anime, they made an anime for this, and it's an amazing thing, you should watch the anime also, especially if you're a fan of the main series, and Welkin takes a big hit in the anime, and he really kind of crumbles for most of the anime after Isara's death, he doesn't really do that in the game, but it really shows like kind of that depression that you feel after losing a loved one, especially you know a member of your family, and even with the others around him trying to help and support him, he doesn't come to terms with it. Come to terms with it until near the end of the war, where they take back their hometown, and he finally has that realization. Like you know, she's not coming back, but I need to keep doing this for her, and I'll you know I'm going to be fine without her. It's just like, damn it, goddamn, it's so depressing. But in a twisted way, I love it because of, you know, for just being a video game character, what she made me feel and just what she did for the story. So, obviously, all the characters we spoke about today kind of had death at the center of their character arc. You know, Loghain trading betraying the king and everyone else and potentially getting killed. Andrew Ryan, whose son has to brutally beat him to death with a golf club in front of his own eyes. And then they saw just a teenager who fell victim during war. Not every character is that way. Like, there are definitely moving characters out there that really resonate with you that don't die. These three just had death as a part of that, but what they taught, even though it involved death, what they stood for and what they taught really kind of resonates with me and I think resonates with others, and then that's what makes a character so memorable. Regardless of what they believed in, whether you agree with it or not, they believed something and it made you think. either taught you something or you reflected about something, it's kind of, like, interesting. And, you know, later when you discuss the game, and, you know, the name Dragon Age is brought up, I think about Logain, or, you know, whenever we're talking, you know, me and my friends are talking about strategy games, I think about Valkyrie Chronicles and Isara, and I'm like, hey, check out this game, this is a really cool game. I don't mention anything about Isara dying, because I don't want to spoil it for them, but I do think about what happened, and what the rest of the game is like without her, because it drives a really big message playing the game as much as the game is fun and all these characters that's what they do for us you know you might not agree with a character in a game whether it's the main character the villain a supporting character it doesn't matter you might not agree with them but they're human and you can understand their drive you can understand sort of why they were doing what they were doing or you can at least tie real human emotion And thought to it. And that's a big thing that video games can do for us. They're not all about just the violence and the having fun or the family time or whatever. There's a way that they can teach us something. And those characters, we remember them personally for that very reason. So thank you very much. So next week... We're going to take this whole thing of talking about the characters, and we're going to talk about the story of games, and particularly the ending of various games, and in addition to the characters in those games, what those stories can do for us. And then from there, we'll see where the rest of Season 1 takes us. So, thank you all for joining me for another week. Stay cool, and enjoy your summer. Take care. Join us every Sunday at 8 p.m. for a new episode of Gaming Couch. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at Gaming Couch for news and updates. And if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, shoot us an email at gamingcouchpodcast at gmail.com.